goodness, this has never happened before. Thank you, guys. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, this is, this is going to be a fun day, I can tell. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun in the message. Um, okay, let me start with a question. Do you find it difficult... I wish I had like a in the in the army we have we have uh, we coin people we give people coins for stuff I wish I had one I give you like a special coin like but I'll just have to give you a handshake and said thanks Matthew all right take two do you find it difficult to trust some of you okay all right I saw one hand. And the rest of you are raising your hands in your hearts and nodding your heads. Okay, I see that hand and I see those nods. Um, it's not very easy to trust. And um, many of us, and perhaps maybe you, find yourself in a situation where you're, you're being asked to trust God. And you've heard all about God. You know God is big and you know God is great. And you know that God... Uh, loves us and, and that he's a good God and he's a gracious God and, and all of those things may be true here in our minds but our hearts find it difficult to trust and perhaps, um, perhaps you can identify with um, a character um, that, we, that we can read about in the Chronicles of Narnia which is one of my favorite series of books um, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Okay, so that's how the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader begins. Here's a boy named Eustace. Um, when I was a little boy, we used to go, he sounds like useless, and we would make jokes about it. Well, he was kind of a useless boy. He was not a very nice boy. He was a very mean boy. He was nasty, and he um, didn't treat people kindly. He didn't treat his his cousins very kindly, but he ends up going on this, this, this crazy adventure with them by accident to Narnia. And on this adventure, he continues to be a nasty boy. He continues to be mean and spiteful and, and um, Eustace-like until something terrible happens to him. He ends up on an island in this voyage of the Dawn Treader, they're on the sea, ends up on this island where in his greed and bitterness and ugliness and nastiness, he ends up being turned into a dragon. Okay? Well, then something happens to him. And I'm going to read a little bit. So buckle up and I'm going to tell you a little bit of his story. He turns into a dragon. He finds that this, this bracelet that he was wearing um, on his arm, because he had this little tiny little scrawny arm, is now tight and painful because in the night he turned into a dragon and now this bracelet which was on his upper arm is, is painful and cutting it off, cutting off circulation there and he's trying to figure out what to do. And then something frightening happens. He meets a lion, and the lion begins to talk to him, and the lion tells him that if he will undress before he gets into this pool, then he can be healed. Then the, the pain will go away, and things will be like they should be. Well, he says... I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes. When I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, sorry David, they're snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. 
in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this under skin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the other two and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place. It hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund, his cousin. He continues, Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed me? With his paws? Or dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes. The same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here. Which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. The children talk about it, and they say, this was no one, this could not, couldn't have been anyone but Aslan. You met Aslan. You meant the God of this world. You met the Creator. You met the One who sets everything right. You met the One who deserves your trust. You met the One who alone has the power to heal, to save, to make new, to give new clothes even. Trust. Are you willing to trust Christ completely to do what only He can do, no matter how painful it might be? Let's read together Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're in, we're in this beautiful letter. Um, we've been here for a couple of weeks now, and we will be for a few more weeks into the fall. And we're going to look today at chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, where we uh, left off last week. We're going to look at verses 7 to 11. Would you stand with me today as we read this passage? Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Follow along with me, please, as I read aloud. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, enlighten our eyes and our minds, but especially our hearts today, that we will not blind ourselves, that we will not cut ourselves off from what you want to speak to us today and, and what you want us to know and learn and do, especially realizing the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Folks, the big idea today is this. Knowing Christ is the all-surpassing purpose of our lives. Knowing Christ is the all-surpassing purpose of our lives. But there's an implication in this. And it is this. So, because knowing Christ is the all-surpassing purpose of our lives, we trust in Christ completely. So we trust in Christ completely. Now, before we jump into the, 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 the text and unpack everything, I just want to remind you of, of Paul's reason for writing what he's writing. And it was found back in, in, in verse 1 of this chapter. Remember, remember if you, uh, some of you know this, and, and if you don't know this, uh, here's some information for you. Our Bibles are laid out in chapters and verses, but they weren't all there in the original. Okay, so Paul wasn't thinking, hey, let's start a new chapter with verse 1. and verse... No, but, but for us, looking back at 3.1, Paul is transitioning into this section that he's been writing on and we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. And he says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And that safe there, the idea of safe is, is security. Safety, security, it's... it's it's like the feeling of coming inside a well-fortified castle or fortress or the like, okay? It's that safe and secure place. So Paul's writing these things to his, his listeners, his, his church, his friends, and he's saying, look, these are the reasons I'm telling you about this stuff. These are the reasons I want you to know Christ as the all-surpassing purpose of your life. I want you to know that because I care about your joy and I care about your security or your safety. These are important things and they are, they are for us too. That's why God has this for us. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this down and it's been preserved for us to this day because he cares about your joy. And he cares about you having secure and safe, stable foundation for your life. He wants you to know the all-surpassing worth of Christ Jesus as your purpose for your life. And so, they're relevant for us as we're looking at these. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that God wants you to have joy in Him. And that God wants you to be safe and secure. And He doesn't want you to drift away any longer into other things. Things that will not satisfy. Things that will not bring you purpose. Things that have no meaning apart from Christ. So, let's look into this. Uh, the first thing I want us to see in this passage today is that we trust in Christ completely by counting everything else as loss. This is Paul's example to us, and he's putting himself out there. He's not tooting his own horn. He's not saying, see how, how I have abandoned all of these things, and see how great I have been. He, this is the, he is talking about the, the, the experience of every Christian. This should be the experience of every Christian who has been changed through faith in Christ. And he says that 
He counts everything else as loss. Uh, back in verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had, and remember he was talking about his pedigree, about all of the things that he was, who he was as a, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's talking about his accomplishments, all of his religious accomplishments and personal accomplishments and all of the things that he did that he considered to be important, that added value to his life, that other people could see, wow, now that guy, that guy is a good Christian. Or that guy is, in Paul's case, he's a, he is the, a Jew of Jews. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is the top. He's the best. No one can put him down. And then he says he counts everything. Verse 8 is interesting. Because in verse 7 he said, I counted them all as lost. In the past, I did that in the past, and that has implications for my everyday. And to drive home the point, in verse 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, those same things, I counted, as lost for sake is, indeed, he says, I count today, right now, I count everything else as loss because of the surpassing surpassing, excuse me, worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then again, to drive home the point, he says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. All things. He has, he has lost all things. He has let go of all things. God, you take it. Take it from me. It's, it's all yours. It's not mine. If I can lose everything in order to gain Christ, I want to do that. Which is what he says in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All he cares about, the all-surpassing purpose of his life, is knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. All of those other things are loss. Have you considered what the all things are in your own life? I, I, I want to challenge you. Because I'm, going to, I'm, I'm trying to challenge myself here too. All things. Well, even the good things? Even the things in our life that we see, oh, these are great gifts from God? Yeah. Do, do you not think that Paul considered his, his birth, his lineage, his heritage, his family as a good thing, as a good gift from God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he says, hey, there's great, there's great good in being a Jew. Hey, hey, we have the law. Chapter 9 and 10. We have the law. We have the, we have, we have the prophets. We have all of these, this, the revelation from God. This is a good thing. But when he came face to face with Christ, he said, I have to exchange all of that for Christ. Could the good things or could the all things in your life be good things? Oswald Chambers once wrote, the great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, okay, hear me out, but, he says, the good which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. If that doesn't challenge us, I don't know what will. But that's what Paul is saying here. Oswald Chambers is expressing in, in his own time, and in, in his own terms, and for us, what Paul is expressing here. Oh, those were good things, all right. But they weren't good enough. They weren't going to get me anywhere. They weren't going to get me to God. And in fact, they became enemies of the cross of Christ. They became enemies of the best. What God had for me in Christ. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things so that he could experience, so that he could gain the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I told you a moment ago, Paul isn't considering himself a super Christian. He's not saying, well, look at me, see how great I am. Now, if you want to be a lesser Christian, that's okay. You can still get to heaven by the skin of your teeth, as my grandpa used to say. But, but, but if you really want to be good, no, he's not saying that at all. He's saying this is absolutely what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
what it meant to follow Jesus like that. What it meant to deny himself. What it meant to give up a lesser joy to accept what Christ offers. To accept and to, and to receive and to, and to take hold of that which is of surpassing worth. Its value is above anything else. It's the treasure hidden in the field. It is the pearl of great price that Jesus described. This is what the kingdom of God is like. When you find this, you want to sell everything, everything you have, and liquidate all of your assets so that you can purchase that one thing. Let everything else go and take hold of what is of surpassing worth. The image came into my mind this week of what if, if we were burdened down and our hands were full? Just, just think, because I think what's going on with most of us is in a, in a, in a metaphorical sense, our hands are full of all kinds of blessings. And even things that, I know there are a lot of things that shouldn't be there either. Our pockets are full of stuff that shouldn't be there. And then we're also, hands and arms and pockets are full of a bunch of stuff that we consider great and good. We like, we love these things. God's given us great gifts. He's got a, given us his church. He's given us uh, a sound system. He's given us beautiful family. He's given us health and strength. He's given us good jobs. All of these things are beautiful and wonderful. And then when we're, when we're full of all of these things, we, we, we discover there's something that is of surpassing worth to all of them. What will we do? Will we empty our arms? Will we empty our pockets to receive what is of surpassing worth? Or will we go... Like many of us think, we can just, hey, Jesus, hey, there's a, there's a back pocket. Just write it right in there. Just kind of put, put that in there. Yeah, there we go. Now I've got Jesus too. My life is full. We, got, we have no Jesus. We don't have Jesus. Paul has d- discovered that if I don't let go of all of those things, I don't know Jesus I will not know him. I will not believe in him. I, if I don't count everything else as loss, I will not know Christ as the all-surpassing purpose of my life. We, <laughs> we end up being like Nathan Johnson, who says, all I need is this ashtray. That's all I need. And this paddle ball. That's all I need. Or this remote control or this lamp or this pencil or this chair or this dog or well not my dog but that's all I need our hands are full with crap compared to Jesus compared to knowing Jesus he says I count them as a rubbish Dung, feces, street filth. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We trust in Christ completely by counting everything else as loss. But Paul doesn't leave it there. What do we exchange? We exchange rubbish for knowing, gaining, being found in, and being conformed to Christ. We trust in Christ completely by knowing, gaining, being found in, being conformed to Christ. We, we see Him as the surpassing worth, verse 8. That phrase, surpassing worth, it means to surpass in quality or value. This is something qualitatively better. This is something of surpassing worth. This, this word is used um, a couple other times in this letter when Paul says, don't, or, or in humility, count others more significant, more worthy, uh, more valuable than yourselves. And then he says in chapter 4, we'll look at that in a few weeks, when he says the peace of God, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. 
knowing God, knowing the peace of God is more valuable than anything else we could think about and comprehend. This is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And he says, he says, he uses these four four ways of, of talking about knowing Him. The first one is to know. Um, it comes, it's, it's about knowledge. It's about, um, uh, if, we, if we take it just in its basic form, it's what we know. It's the content of what we know. But Paul, I love, I love that Paul, um, he's not just speaking or using the Greek language. He's not just talking about gnosis, that is what, what uh, Greeks or Romans would think of as this knowledge of, of philosophy and having all of the right answers and being able to figure things out. No, he's, he's, he thinks of knowledge as the knowledge that God had of His people in the Old Testament and of what they had of Him and of what they had for each other. Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore a son. There's no doubt what knowledge, what knowing meant in that context. Intimacy. Personal. Relationship. God knew His people. You remember back in, uh, in Exodus? Think back to uh, 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 late January, early February. And the Bible says to us in Exodus chapter 2 that, that God saw and heard he was aware of the suffering of his people and he knew them. He knew them. Meaning, he cared. He loved them. They were in a situation uh, of desperation and he knew them and he loved them. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about. He's talking about knowing Christ personally. He's talking about knowing Christ Jesus. He says, my Lord... Did you know that he, he, there's only one place in the entire New Testament, all of Paul's write, in all of Paul's writings, where he uses the phrase, my Lord, right here. Everywhere else, in fact, even in this letter, he talks about Christ, our Lord, Christ Jesus, our Lord. He uses that communal term, and he believes in that. But here, for emphasis, he's pointing out the fact that I know Christ Jesus as my Lord. There's personal intimacy there. He knows me and I know Him. I would gladly exchange my life for Him. I would gladly receive Him as gain. The gain is talking about is the, a return on an investment. To gain Christ means to see, see Him in the profit column of His life. Not that He, uh, by His own efforts, acquired Christ. Because he's already pointed out, it's not about my efforts and not about my accomplishments. But when I look at everything else, I see Christ as the ultimate gain in my life. And then he says in verse 9, to be found in Him. I, like, I love this word because it, um, it, uh, it, it is a Greek word, heurisko. And um, we get the word eureka. You know? And I, 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 love that. I love that word. It's a great word to you know, shout out when... When you're trying to find cables for the sound system and you go, oh, there they are right there. If they, would have, if they were a snake, they would have bit me. But Eureka, we found them. And, and, and Paul is saying not, not that he found Christ, but that he discovered, this is the, this is the force of what he's saying, that he discovered. It was like he woke up one day or maybe he got up off of the dusty trail blind as a bat, and he realized that Christ had chased him down, that Christ had found him. And he discovered that now he's no longer in the flesh, his old way of thinking, his old way of living, but now he is in Christ. That is something to rejoice in. Rejoice in the Lord. He tells his Readers, he tells us in verse 9, he says, to be found in him. I have discovered that I am in a new state. I am in a new condition. Not the old way, but a new way with Christ. This is all about his personal relationship with Jesus. And then in verse 10, 
just jump down and, and look at this other phrase. In verse 10, he talks about knowing him again, re-emphasizes that, the power of his resurrection, sharing his sufferings. And then there's this phrase, becoming like him in his death. And literally, the, uh, I, I, I would prefer to see the, the, the original language kind of appear like this, and that is being conformed to his death. There's a a conforming, or maybe a better word, a word that I like to use a lot, transformation. He's being transformed. He he is longing to be transformed into Christ's likeness. The word in the Greek is is the word that we get metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, a change, a transformation is taking place, has taken place, and is taking place. It's, it's like Paul said in the beginning of his letter in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that, he, he tells them that, sorry, bear with me, he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The change has already taken place. He's been justified before God through Christ. He is in a right standing with Christ, but his life is not over. His transformation is not over. It's still taking place. He is being transformed. He's being conformed. He's becoming like Jesus. And he longs for that, and he's reaching out for that. And he's saying, I have to trust in Christ completely. By, being, by knowing Him, by gaining Christ, by being found in Him, by being like Him. And here's where we get the, the main application. Because He says being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He says the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The, the word faith in, in the New Testament, listen to this definition. The state of believing on, on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. We, um, we, uh, we sometimes find ourselves talking about blind faith. Well, I don't know for sure, but I just believe it. <laughs> I, just, I just trust. I just believe. And whatever you say, you can't... Uh, I, I know that I don't have a, a reason for this, but I believe it anyway. That is not what Paul is talking about. That is not the faith that Paul is talking about. He is talking about confidence. He's talking about reliability. He's talking about having faith in Christ because Christ is completely reliable. He says we all can trust in Christ completely because Christ is completely trustworthy. He's there. He's real. He's true. I've seen Him with my own eyes. And I fellowshiped with the brothers and sisters who, who saw Him after His resurrection. Christ is faithful. He's powerful. He's true. He's real. And I've trusted in Him. And that, my friends, is how we receive the righteousness from God. It depends on faith. Not on us achieving a certain level of Christianity. We don't level up in Christianity in that sense. We receive all of Christ by faith. We, see, we, we receive all of God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness by faith. We stand there like Eustace, naked as a jaybird, scrawny and skinny, coming out of the pool, going, well, now what? And he gets clothed in new clothes. At our conversion, at our transformation, when we, when we slough off the dragon skin that, that Christ himself peels away and, and, and annihilates us, goes straight to the heart, there we are standing dependent on his righteousness, on him to clothe us. 
Jesus told a parable about this, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. He talked about, he told a story about a wedding feast. He told a story about uh, the man, uh, the king, um, uh, planning a wedding feast for his son and inviting people to come, and, and many didn't come. Everyone who, everyone who should have come didn't come. So he said to his servants, go out and, and, and preach it, proclaim it, to the highways and the byways. Let everybody know. Anybody who can come will come. And they come, and then the wedding feast, the, 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 the tent, the celebration is full of people, and they're all celebrating. And all these people are there who you'd be like, why are they there? They're, they're street people. They're, they're peasants. And they have nothing to offer. They have no gift for the king. But that's what it is. That's what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. That's what citizenship in heaven looks like. And yet the king comes, uh, comes across a man who is standing there. And the king looks at him and goes, what in the world are you doing here? Why are you not wearing your wedding garments? And it says, Jesus said, the man had no answer. I, I don't know what happened. Maybe. So here's the tradition. At feasts like that, at great feasts like that, the, the, the king or the, the, the Lord or the, the great person would offer a garment to every one of his guests. And the guests would put that garment on and it would signify that they were invited, that they were chosen, that they were meant to be there. And, and they would put on that garment a, a fine garment for the wedding, and it meant they belonged. That's who, that, they, they were supposed to be there. And here's a man who said, maybe at the door he said, oh, no, 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 no. I like what I'm wearing. And I, my girls like to get dressed up, and they like, they're very concerned about what they're wearing and how they look when they go out the door. And that's okay. But maybe this man was like, I mean, he took his time. He got ready. He, he did his petty manny earlier in the day. He had his hair done. He had his robes just right, the sash just right, um, his sandals. He'd just gotten these new sandals, and he was breaking them in. They, they looked pretty fancy. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm good to go. Man. I, I dressed up for the king. Look at me. Look what I've... I, I am wearing wonderful king-like clothing. The king will be proud of me. I don't need the wedding garment. But when the king sees him, he says, oh, no, no, no. You come in dressed in my righteousness, not your own. To receive, to trust in Christ completely means to remove our filthy garments. What Isaiah said, our filthy rags, our righteousness and to receive the righteousness from God, His own righteousness, to wear the garments that He provides for us. That's how, who we trust in. And we receive that now by faith. We receive that when we trust in Him. But it's not the, it's not the end of the story because look what Paul continues to do in verses 10 and 11. He talks about the power of his resurrection that enables him to suffer well and to become like him, not just, not just like him in his character and in his holiness, but in his death. That by any means possible, he says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We trust in Christ completely by reaching for, reaching for, the revelation, excuse me, the resurrection. Reaching for the resurrection. Uh, this word attain means to reach a goal. Paul is reaching out for, and he's going to develop this uh, much more clearly in the next few verses that Lord willing will look at next week. But see, for, for Paul, knowing Christ and attaining to the resurrection is his ultimate goal, his ultimate purpose. Because when he attains to the resurrection from the dead, that's when he's going to be in Christ completely. That's, that's when his suffering and trials are going to be over. When he's no longer going to be wrestling with 
sin, where he's no longer going to be wondering, how is this going to work out? He's going to have Christ completely. And he says it, it takes two things, this, this life now and in the future. He, he says, he talks about knowing him and, or that is, or specifically these two things, the power of his resurrection, and then he says, and may share his sufferings. And I, and, and I like, um, I'm not sure if I'm really happy with that translation, because when you look at the original language, it, it literally means the fellowship of his sufferings. He has two, these are two parallel phrases, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He, does that, do all of you want power? Do you all want to receive the power of his resurrection? Absolutely. Did you know that the power of his resurrection is inseparable from the fellowship of his sufferings? That's what Paul is saying. He, now, he's not telling us, um, try to suffer as much as possible. Try to make decisions in your life so that you can just suffer badly. I read about um, in the book, uh, Through Gates of Splendor. If you've never read it, please read it. If it's on your, if it's on your uh, nightstand or your, your uh, dresser, pick it up, read it. And in that, uh, there's a pilot named Nate Saint. And Nate is a pilot, a missionary pilot, and he's transporting people back and forth. And Nate He's, he cares a great deal about safety. In fact, he's, he, he's a, a mechanic. He's kind of a, a, a side, side, side inventor and pilot. And, and he's creating, he's doing all of these things to his plane to make it more, uh, more uh, uh, well, I was going to say roadworthy, but he's not flying, he's not driving, he's flying. I mean, it's going to be safer, it's going to be more efficient, it's going to get them there, he's going to be able to stay in the air longer, and if something goes wrong, some malfunction, he's got these backups, and he does all this stuff, and people are asking him, well, why are you doing it? Don't, shouldn't you be trusting God? Well, absolutely. He trusts God. He, every time he gets in that plane, he says, this may be my last flight. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do everything I can to be safe and secure. And so Paul is not saying we ought to be looking for suffering. Where's the, where's the, where's the closest uh, point of suffering that I, can, that I can do for Christ? But he is saying this, that if we are running away from it, if we're running away from suffering, if we're running away from pain, if we're just if we're unwilling to follow Jesus into hard or difficult or painful places, we're not experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings that are inseparable from the power of his resurrection. Paul himself illustrates that he's been suffering for the sake of Christ throughout this letter was he talks about his, 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 uh, excuse me, he talks about his imprisonment. He talks about uh, others preaching Christ in order to afflict him. He, he's talking, he talks about the suffering that he's experiencing and, he, and the call to the Philippians to suffer for Christ's sake as well, to be engaged in the same conflict. And he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, if, even if my life is to be poured out to death, I rejoice. And I encourage you to rejoice in that too, Philippians. Don't, don't shy away from suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. It is in that way that the world often sees a powerful display of the gospel. A few years ago, um, a few years ago, one of the Desiring God conferences, John Piper shared a series of messages and, about suffering. And, and in that, he shared a couple of the stories of, of missionaries who have suffered horrendously for the sake of Christ. One story of a man who, who was um, visiting a series of villages. He came into a village and he um, explained the gospel to them. And when, they, when he shared it with them, they got so angry at him that they beat him senselessly and dragged him out of the city. And he woke up later, or the village, and he woke up later and he went, what did I do wrong? How could they, how could they not receive such a beautiful gift. I must have explained it wrong. I will have to go back to them 
and try again and, and explain it differently. He does it a second time. And they do the same thing and they drag him out. And they leave him for dead outside the village. And again he thinks, am I, am I, doing, am I, am I making a mistake here? Do I need to change this up? Let me see if I can tell it like this or like this. He goes back in and guess what? The same thing happens. And before he falls unconscious, the people beating him, he sees them weeping as they're beating him. Once again, he wakes up outside the city. I'm sorry. Once again, he wakes up. But this time, sorry, he's not outside the village. He's lying in a bed. And he's being tended to. And his attackers, the, the people who beat him senseless three times, are tending him and caring for him. And the village elder comes up to him and says, we realize that one who's willing to suffer such pain for the gospel and for Christ must believe in something real. They had all put their faith in him, in Christ because of the man's willing to share the sufferings of Christ. That may sound like a horribly painful prospect for a follower of Jesus. And may we never have to go through something quite like that. But oh, there's these little pains, these little troubles that we run away from over and over again, right? We're, we're unwilling to suffer even Rejection or inconvenience for the sake of Christ. See, Paul was, had experienced the power of the resurrection in his own life, being transformed and made new. And he saw it and he experienced it as he, as he joined, as he knew Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. But he knew that it was not just for now, but it was for a future that was not yet. He trusted that whatever happened to him, go ahead and kill my body. You cannot have my soul. Because when I die, I go to be with Christ. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus models that for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, but focus in on two with me. The writer of Hebrews uh, invites us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus knew where He was going, and He knew that there is no resurrection from the dead unless you go through death. For us, maybe that's a metaphorical spiritual death right now. That there are things of ourself that we need to die to. But then there's also the, the, the real, literal, physical death that we will one day experience unless Jesus comes again. And that is, the, that is now and then the place that we go that is the path that we travel to be with our Lord and experience the promise of His resurrection. Consider Jesus today. Paul writes about, Paul writes here in, in uh, Philippians 3 about becoming like Him in His death. Consider Jesus who in, in chapter 2 Paul says became like or was transformed or conformed to form of a servant. He was in the form of God. But then he became he, he came in the form of a servant. Consider Jesus was as Paul talks about being found in him. Jesus finds himself in the state in the condition of human form. Jesus Paul says he wants to become like him or be conformed to his death and consider Jesus who became obedient to the point of death chapter 2 verse 8 consider that Paul wants to know him to know Christ 
the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. And that's the very point of chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, when Paul talks about Christ's example of coming, being a, a, a servant, being found in human form, dying, to being obedient to the point of death, so that he could be exalted, Lord of lords. Being like Christ was the point that Paul was making back in chapter 2. And it's the very point that he's, 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 he's raising here. That we, too, through our death and our suffering for Christ, will attain, will reach the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ is the all-surpassing purpose of our lives. Hands down. Will you trust in Him completely? That's the, that's the question I have for you today. Will you trust in Him completely? Will you give up whatever gain you have, whatever you have accomplished, whatever is going on in your life, everything, leave it at the cross so that you can know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for teaching us today. I pray, God, that you will. You will not let us sit on this without taking action. What is it, God, that we need to give to you right now, today? That we need to exchange for knowing you. That we need to consider and count as loss for the sake of Jesus our Lord. Let us know intimately, personally, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. What I've said is the all-surpassing, most valuable, highest good, the ultimate purpose of our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something.